You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore daddy. So we have a lot of ground to cover. Um, I do want to get to the news and notes. We've got a lot of bad news, unfortunately, that I have to report to you, although you probably know it, so I don't know if I'm... Is it still reporting? I guess it's reporting. I don't think the, the term report goes away because you knew it already. And don't judge me because I just typed in define report because I'm kind of a nerd. Yeah, give a spoken or written account of something that one has observed, heard, done, or investigated. So, yeah. I'm going to tell you something that I heard, therefore I reported it. Done. Either way, it's bad. And I don't have to define the word bad. I think we all know what that one is. So, um, first of all, Joe Barry, our defensive coordinator that we have just now learned to love and appreciate, uh, most of us anyways, he is, unfortunately, he has contracted covid Um, As far as I know, none of these have severe symptoms of any kind, but he does have the virus, and as a result, he is not allowed to be in and around the team because obviously we don't want to continue spreading the virus in an attempt to do right by the world and not eventually getting back to somebody that would be at higher risk, etc., etc. And so he's out. He's not going to be with us on Thursday. My assumption is that it will primarily fall on Jerry Gray, but I think there will also be some um, sharing of duties. They'll split up Joe Barry's responsibilities, maybe even a little bit of that falling on Matt LaFleur himself. But if I had to guess, the main defensive coordinator would be Jerry Gray. Um, And as as much as people are going to be excited about that, and I, I think he has the potential to be a great defensive coordinator, I don't know that. I know he's a great DB coach. That's a different thing than being a great defensive coordinator, but he's also a guy that people seem to respect. Point is, though, I don't know that we can really have our expectations super high for a guy to just be thrust into that position. I think it's great experience for him. And and again, I don't know that this is the case, but if it is, it's great experience and all that, but it's still a tough spot to be in. I mean, he has not spent um, the entire offseason preparing to be a defensive coordinator and and having many seasons of experience like Joe Barry has had. Um, But obviously he's been around. He knows what's expected. Possibly, potentially even worse, but maybe not. Devontae Adams also has COVID. Again, um, Joe Barry and Devontae Adams are both vaccinated. Um, And as far as I know, they are not having any symptoms. But because they're in advanced uh, protocols right now, they're testing everybody every day, which means there's higher likelihood of catching somebody on our team with it, which is somewhat unfortunate. I mean, I guess that's the job, but it's a little bit of an unfair disadvantage, I guess. But anyways, he also will not be available for this Thursday. I suppose it would be my uh, duty to inform you that the Packers do perform quite well in the absence of Devontae Adams. And I think the coaches do a fantastic job, you know, I mean, there's been some speculation as to why that is. And I think a lot of it has to do with maybe the fact that we lean so much on Devontae and we build so much of the scheme around Devontae. Um, There's a couple different ways you could look at it. One is that we do that and it's a bit of a hindrance to the team, or possibly it's not even necessarily that it's a hindrance. It's just that some of the other players maybe aren't shining quite as brightly because you have Devontae Adams on the field. You know what I mean? Like envision a flashlight and I'm shining that somewhere off in the distance. And then somebody comes up with one of those, you know, those 
mega flashlights that can, you know, you can basically shine it on the Empire State Building from street level on the top and people will be able to see it like a big spotlight, basically. If you shine that next to that other flashlight, you're not going to see it anymore. Suddenly that other flashlight is though it doesn't exist. In other words, it's possible that they're coming up with a bad plan because, well, it's Devante and we have to do it. It's also possible that it's exactly the right plan, but we only think that the other guys that we have aren't quite good enough because we don't really incorporate them as much. And once Devante goes away and we're like, all right, it's your guys' time to shine, suddenly they look like the stars that they probably always have been and could be if Devante really wasn't on the field. Again, it doesn't have to mean the team is doing something wrong. The best thing to do is to take your star quarterback and your star wide receiver and make that the focal point of your offense. Just like, simultaneously, um, Matt LaFleur's offense. If Jordan Love was on the field, it would probably look more like a Matt LaFleur offense. In other words, what he would ideally love his offense to do, which is a little bit more of a balanced attack, a little bit more, you know what I mean? It's a little bit more flashy, flary, jet sweepy, quick throw, and a a heavy dose of running the football. And as a result of the, the RPOs and everything else, play action passing, you've got a quarterback that really shines, but he shines within the system. But again, we don't do that as much because Aaron Rodgers is on the field. And that isn't to say, right, for example, if Jordan, if, if Aaron Rodgers went down, Jordan Love came out, and then they really opened up the offense and it looked beautiful, some people might be tempted to say Aaron Rodgers is holding back this offense or Matt LaFleur is inappropriately holding back the offense to cater to Aaron Rodgers and that's the wrong thing. That's not necessarily true. It may just be that as great as this offense is, the better decision is to cater more specifically to Aaron Rodgers because he's that good. That's kind of the point I'm making with Devontae here. I might just be making all this up, but it's something to consider at least. So I guess what I'm saying is it's not really just a coincidence that everybody else really shines when Devontae goes off the field. It's just that we're getting a better glimpse of just how good all these other pieces are when they get to be the focal point. Now, that may not be the case. It may just be a coincidence because it's not like it happens every single week, but they have had a great track record when Devontae goes off the field, up to and including many people saying Aaron Rodgers and this offense perform better without Devontae. And again, I think a lot of that just has to do with efficiency. When you distribute the ball, it it, it just, things sort of work better. It's harder to defend, harder to defend, but you're also kind of leaning on guys that aren't Devontae. So it's double-edged sword there. To kind of look at it more closely, the New Orleans Saints. Um, I know the last time we remember the New Orleans Saints, they kind of thrashed us. But the time before that, when we played them in the regular season, we beat them 37-30. to That was with Drew Brees and the whole gang. We had no Devontae in that. And then the next game, we had the Atlanta Falcons, obviously not as good of a team, but we shellacked them 30-16. to Again, no Devontae. So, you know, I mean, if you'd have just looked at these scores and said, tell me which game Devontae wasn't on, you'd have a hard time picking it out. Likewise, the year before that, Devontae missed four games in a row. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy because it feels catastrophic. Like, every time it happens, it's like we're doomed. We're absolutely doomed without Devontae. And no question, he's the best wide receiver in football. And yes, he is performing better than he was last year somehow, despite the fact that last year I said there's no way he's going to perform better than the year before that. And he did. I don't know what the ceiling is for Devontae, but he apparently hasn't found it yet. But every single year, he goes out and it feels like we're doomed. And so, I mean, even if you look at the year before that, so we're in 2019 now, he missed four games. You know how catastrophic that felt? We played Dallas, beat them 34-24, to that's 10 points. Uh, we beat Detroit 23-22, which, I mean, that's Detroit, that always happens. Oakland we beat 42 
to 24. Very rarely would we get to 40. That was the only game we reached 40 the entire year, and it was with no Devontae. And then the week after that, we played the Kansas City Chiefs, and yes, it was the Mahomes-less Kansas City Chiefs, but still the Kansas City Chiefs, and we beat them 31-24. The first week we get Devontae back, we so we, we had a loss the week before Devontae went out and the week after Devontae went out, but the four games in between, we won all four of those. I, again, I'm not saying we're better without Devontae, but you can see why people clearly think that. Also, stop saying that so loud because Devontae doesn't have a contract yet. And if we go out and whoop Arizona with no Devontae and the offense looks better than it has, I mean, I love Devontae, man. And he's a difference maker and he's special. But dang, <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a, I mean, if you're Devontae's agent, you're struggling. This team is different with Devontae on the field. Like, yeah, I know. That's the problem. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> that's we're we are different. That's true. But anyways, um, it's a bad situation considering it's the Arizona Cardinals and what they're into and how good they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. But it is what it is, and we'll just have to kind of go along and see what we got going on as far as uh, COVID. There may there's some um, talk or the way that Matt LaFleur mentioned it sounds like there are other people that might have COVID. Um, let me just read this tweet by Tom Silverstein. He says, Packers coach Matt LaFleur said the organization is in advanced protocol, which means everyone is testing every day and must wear masks. LaFleur said there are other issues with staff, but didn't say who else other than Joe Barry might be out this week. Um, definitely makes it seem like the staff are not coaches, or at least, you know, high-level people that would be on the field needing to, you know, contribute or whatever, but uh, also sounds like it may be a bigger issue, and that makes you concerned for who else may end up having it. But again, if somebody else has it, you're going to find out pretty quick because, um, you know, they got to test every day and whatnot. A couple other notes before we get to the PFF stuff and start talking about the Cardinals. Hopefully we can get there anyways um, from the uh, coaching pressers and whatnot. LeFleur said the majority of players are vaccinated. He doesn't think there's a big concern about close contact between coaches who might have tested, vac- tested, vaccinated, and players. I don't know what that means. I mean, look, not to dive into this whole thing, but I, I, I don't know why. I know some people are very focused on that. I don't think that's really a major consideration. What we're really concerned with is spread, and whether you're vaccinated or not has very little to do with that. To be fair, I don't know that masks do all that much either, but, you know, as long as they're distancing which isn't really great because the last thing you want to do when you're preparing for a game is distancing because you want to be in classroom environments and you want to be on the field in close contact practicing. And if you can't do any of those things, that's a problem. And if you are doing those things, but you have masks on and you think that that's going to prevent the spread, I, I worry that it's, it's going to spread. But um, at the end of the day, I mean, this is just, this is how it goes. I mean, it, it's going to, stupid things are going to find a way one way or another seeing it with all the different teams and it's just hitting the Packers and I mean we could also count ourselves lucky that it's only two people because obviously all these guys are in relative close contact if nothing else during game day I mean if you know look at all the high-fiving and everything else that goes on during a game not to mention you got players like Lambo leaping and stuff I mean if the virus were that transmissible almost like uh, what is that movie a Denzel movie that's really sweet with like the crazy guy that's kind of like a demon I think that goes from body to body doesn't really work because he can fly from person to person. But if it was just that easy, where like you touch some, oh no, I think he did have to touch somebody. No, maybe not. That's not true because when somebody died, he kind of floated. Anyways, I'm just picturing like if as soon as you touch somebody, it like transmits to them. We'd all be in trouble. I mean, there's there's no way. Fortunately, that's not how COVID works. 
Some more not comforting um, comments, I guess. LaFleur said it's pretty hard to plan whether he'll be missing more than defensive coordinator Joe Barry for this Thursday night game against the Cardinals. But he said he thinks he has the process in place that will help the team get through the week. <laughs> Everything about that last sentence is horrible. First of all, the beginning of the sentence basically means we can't really plan for who might not be there. So we're going to put a plan in place to utilize certain people, and if they don't show up, we're kind of just screwed. <laughs> that's that's it. I mean, we can only plan with, with the information we currently have. Secondly, he thinks the process in place will help the team get through the week. Thinks, help, and through make me a little bit nervous. We might have a way to assist our team in just skirting through this week, just, just surviving it. <laughs> I mean, I know we're kind of reading into the semantics of what he or how he said things, but um, I mean, again, sometimes people just say what's on their mind and forget exactly what people don't know and what's on your mind. And it seems to be what's on Matt LaFleur's mind is that he's not feeling super great <laughs> about this. That doesn't mean he thinks they're necessarily going to lose. He just recognizes how unbelievably difficult this is. I mean, every Thursday on some level is just a completely unfair, ridiculous scenario because, I mean, we, we take a week to prepare for a game and we're giving you a half a week. It's like, okay, dude, well, that's stupid. Nobody can get ready in a half a week. But okay, Thursday, it's great. Let's see what we can do. But just the level of exasperation in that, you know, I don't know. We'll, we'll see if we can just slip by this week. We'll, we'll see how it goes. It's pretty funny. Uh, continuing on, all the players' meetings today will be virtual. As far as when the players get back in the building tomorrow, they'll have to be masked up. He said they have the facilities that will allow them to spread out. He said they will only do walkthroughs on Tuesday to pre- prepare. So, I mean, it just sucks. It's a nearly impossible task to tell a team after just getting done with that. Their bodies are completely bruised and battered. They don't have any time to even heal up. Uh, there's not enough time, adequate amount of time to prepare for the Arizona Cardinals, which is why teams tend to peek ahead into the future and whatnot. And now they can't even properly practice because they can't be near each other. So they're just doing walkthroughs, virtual learning, spaced out exercises. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. I mean, you got to do what you got to do. It just, this feels like a, a waste Continuing on, LaFleur said that left tackle David Bakhtiari would do more than just walkthroughs this week as he progressed in his return. He will work with trainers and practice squad players so his path to return isn't paused in a short week where there is very little practice time. So I would guess he is not going to be back this week. I don't think they're going to rush anybody back for this game. I hate to be all doom and gloom about it, but I just I feel like, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but um, that's my that's my expectation. LeFleur did say that MVS is getting closer to a return and was out running today in his rehab from hamstring injury. He is currently on IR, but he is eligible to be activated to the 53-man roster. He has not practiced yet. Now, a quick note on that, because a lot of people are saying he will be back this Thursday or they're confident that he'll be back this Thursday, whatever. Even if he is back, and I want to look a little bit closer into this as far as people returning their first game back from injury. I don't know that we can set the bar super high for MVS in terms of, hey, Devontae's out, but MVS is back, and he's not going to miss a beat. First of all, his beat is, let's be honest about it, it's not that high anyways. But point is, though, I don't know how much you can put on his plate. With that said, though, the cool thing about MVS, unlike Devontae, Devontae, the point of Devontae, in a nutshell, is production. Devontae's job is to get open, despite being probably double-covered. Get your body in, in position and in the right spot. Catch the ball and get yards. That's Devontae's job. MVS, although a lot of that is also true, 
It's the mere essence of MVS that kind of makes him useful. Because as long as he's healthy enough to run in a straight line real fast, again, it's like I've said, it's one of those situations where you can sit there and say, well, he's not even, he's just a decoy, we're not going to pay attention. Okay, let the decoy run behind you and see how much he doesn't matter. Allow him to get behind your safeties and watch how much Aaron Rodgers is just putting him out there to be a decoy. Ain't happening. So it's, it's, an, it's an annoying thing where just by virtue of him being there, even if you don't respect him as a wide receiver no matter what, if you don't do your job with MVS, you're in a lot of trouble. And again, just by virtue of him being there, it puts stress on a defense. Even if he doesn't grade out well, if he doesn't even, even if he doesn't get um, a lot of production, a lot of yards, he forces the defense to do certain things, and that's valuable. And there are certain things that do that. I mean, a lot of what Matt LaFleur's offense is is misdirection. You know, we're going to send somebody in motion. You know, look at a guy like Amari when he goes in motion. You can ignore it if you want, but the the one time you decide you never throw to him, so I'm going to ignore it, and we're not going to shift, and we're not going to pay attention to that, guess what? It's going right to him. So we're going to do that little annoying thing over and over and over again to force you to move your defense the way I tell you to move it, to put you in a position I want you to be in, so that we can manipulate you however we want. And the day that you say, you know what, I'm not listening to you anymore, I'm going to do what I want, guess what? You messed up. It's a numbers game. you got to shift. Because if you don't shift, we have a numbers advantage. So a lot of it is, you can call it technically a decoy, but a decoy isn't even the right word. They're just these annoying little things that make you do certain things, even though it's we, it's it's it's, it's kind of cool in a way. Now, granted, it, it's it's not. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter how good of a player this person is, because an elite speed threat, you know, a, a Tyreek Hill, for example, is obviously heads and tails more valuable than somebody that's just running a straight line type of a guy. But just by virtue of having that, somebody that can threaten. Think about Mercedes Lewis. Think about what he brings. Just by virtue of the fact that you know this guy's going to break the first tackle. What happens if the Packers scheme sort of a one-on-one to that direction? You know, one of those things where he slips out the other side of the formation, something that you never run with a guy like Mercedes Lewis. The crazy thing about it, though, is even though he's not as athletic and as fast as, as all these other guys are, we're not trying to beat your linebacker. We're trying to put you in a position where we're saying, cool, you got a linebacker there. Who else? If nobody else, this might be 15 yards. (laughs) I'm kind of just throwing out random stuff, but it's things like that. We just want you to make a decision, and either way, it's a decision you don't want to make. I know you don't want to cover MVS because he's hurt, and you don't think he's that good anyways. Fine, then don't cover him. Well, we can't do that. All right, then. Shut your mouth and do your job. (laughs) Shut your mouth and do exactly what I say. Thank you. Signed, Aaron Rodgers. Anyways, We'll see if he comes back. It'll, it'll be a benefit. But again, I just I don't want people to think MVS is back. He's going to get 400 yards and five touchdowns or whatever. Not that that's a thing that anybody ever does, but you get the point. Packers offensive coordinator, and this, this little tidbit here is exactly what I was talking about, but offensive coordinator Nathaniel Hackett said he got about an hour or two to spend with his family after the game, then returned to work at 6 p.m. last night to game plan for the Cardinals game Thursday night. What a crazy job that is. I mean, just think how stressful a pack. I'm exhausted after a Packers game. I got to come down here. I feel like I accomplished something because I come down here and do like a, an hour. Or I think last time it was almost a two-hour live stream um, just talking about the Packer game. It's exhausting. This guy has been up early all day. He's been running up and down a football field in cold weather. His mind is, is so mentally exhausted. Although, is he in the booth? He might be in the booth. Well, Joe Barry would be an example then, although he didn't do that this week because he's currently home with his family sick or locked in a 
closet somewhere. I don't know. I don't know what their personal home protocols are. But after this really long, mentally and physically draining day of work, like work, work, you drive home. It's dark, lots of traffic. You drive home. Hopefully it doesn't have that far of a drive home. Call it 25 minutes. You get out of your car. You're completely physically and emotionally spent. You see your family, you hug them, you're so excited, you sit down on the couch. You know how that feels when you get home from work and it's like, oh, oh, it feels so good sitting on the couch. That's usually when your wife is like, hey, can you take the dog out? And it's like, oh, no. This dude has to start work. <laughs> He's, he has to go to work, like, to start it. His job is just start, his, his second job, basically, which is the same as his first job, being a Green Bay Packers head coach, is just starting. So at, you know... 5.30, he has to be back in his car, drive back to Lambeau Field, go up to his office, and start planning. I mean, it's, it's, part of that sounds actually really exciting. It'd be kind of a cool job, but that's still, it's an exhausting job. But again, the reason they're doing that, because this is a completely unrealistic thing that they're being asked to do to prepare for Thursday, which is why weird things happen on Thursday, because who knows. But also, this, this is the Packers recognizing that the reason crazy things happen is because some teams don't do what you need to do to be fully prepared, and they're planning fully prepared to be fully prepared. Does any of that make sense? They also understand that they get a bit of a longer week, so hey, let's just extra cram this week. We're going to go psycho mode. We're going to get very little sleep, but we're going to be the one that's prepared. We're going to beat the Cardinals, and then guess what? Thursday, we're all sleeping in. Hackett went on to say this will be a very good front se- another very good front seven the Packers will be facing this week, and that we'll have to prepare for a lot of different pressures from the Cardinals that they throw at their opponents. He said Arizona is in the same boat in preparing for Green Bay's offense. Moving on to special teams coach Maurice Drayton said they shuffled some pieces around on the kickoff coverage team, and it went well. They held Washington to about 23-yard line on kickoffs, which I had mentioned that, that... Um, Every play that I remember watching, they stopped him right at about two yards short of the 25, which is fantastic. Drayton said that nose tackle TJ Slayton has great explosiveness and is perfect for blocking field goals. Have you ever seen him dunk a basketball, Drayton said? Which I guess makes a lot of sense. I mean, obviously we want some of that to translate on the the defensive side of the ball. Sometimes it does, but... The point is, on I feel like on field goal kicks, it's a little bit more linear. It's just one big explosive movement because you're not running. You don't really have, I mean, unless you're coming firing off the edge, you don't really have time to sprint at anything. It's a pretty short distance that you have to cover. You have to explode through somebody up into the air and hope you get your hand high enough and in the right spot to block the kick. Continuing on, this is one of my favorite highlights of all the... Uh, interview stuff. Drayton said that punter Corey Bajorquez made an adjustment on the punt from the end zone that prevented the kick from being blocked. Drayton smiled when talking about how key that maneuver was in avoiding a potential disastrous play. So we're already unbelievably impressed with that play, which was his second best play of the day somehow. So his first best play of the day was kicking it to the half centimeter mark and then having it bounce backwards, not into the end zone, and only somehow, despite that massive amount of velocity, only bouncing back about five yards. But anyways, we'll, we'll forget how physics is suspended in this moment. His second best play was when he um, punted the ball about, what was it, 54 yards, with uh, about three guys almost blocking the punt. Now, it was, it was impressive because it's got to be hard to do that. But at the same time, it's like, if you can just shut your brain off and be like, look, I'm just going to kick it. And if it gets blocked, it gets blocked. I don't know. I'm just trying to kick it. But what Drayton is saying is, 
as the ball's coming at him, because, I mean, this is like baseball stuff, right? Being a baseball hitter is is crazy because you have a split second to watch that ball come out of his hand, recognize where the ball is going to end up and win, and if I'm swinging and where I'm swinging. All of this stuff has to be computed really quickly, and you have to make a decision, and then you have to execute that decision properly. Corey Bajorquez basically had to do what batters do in baseball. As that ball's coming at him, he had to make a calculation in his brain about where these people are coming from, how much time he had, and decided that he needed to make some kind of an adjustment, and that rapid split-second adjustment meant the difference between a blocked punt that more than likely would have resulted in points, and again, a 54-yard banger where he looked like it was just another day at the office. Now, I do want to highlight this, and maybe this has been updated and it's he's officially out, but this is kind of an interesting note that I didn't notice. Um, what Tom Silverstein said is he can come back if he tests uh, negative twice in a 24-hour period. Obviously, it's unlikely, but if he tests negative today, as in Tuesday, 24 hours later would be Wednesday. It's not impossible, right? I mean, even if it's Wednesday, could you get away with that Thursday? I don't know why you wouldn't. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure they put in some kind of arbitrary rules about buffer times, like you have to declare by this time, but fine. Test him at 10 o'clock on Wednesday, and if he comes back negative and he tests negative at 10 o'clock on Thursday, he's active. Am I, am I missing something here? I don't know why that couldn't also be true of Joe Barry, but anyways, we'll see how that all plays out. Again, it's unlikely, but you never know. Anyways, um, it's about it for news and notes today. Actually, that's not true. We have a uh, injury report because it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, um, instead of Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So um, Dennis Kelly, the only one that did not practice. Limiteds were Kenny Clark with an ankle injury, um, Kevin King, Dean Lowry, Preston Smith. Full participation, Hunter Bradley, Josiah DeGuara, Razul Douglas. So we'll probably get some more information on what some of these injuries are and how these guys are doing, but it seems like Everything is more or less okay, outside of, obviously, Devontae. As for the Cardinals, guys that didn't practice, Max Garcia, Jordan Hicks, DeAndre Hopkins, that's obviously massive. Rashard Lawrence, uh, J.J. Watt, also massive, but unlikely that that's anything that will keep him out of the game. Um, Limiteds, uh, Daryl Daniels, Devin Kennard, uh, Isaiah Simmons, Tanner Viejo, Kyler Murray was full participation. We'll get into who some of these guys are when we actually cover the Cardinals. But um, anyways, why don't we take that break? Patreon.com forward slash pack underscore daddy. If you'd like to support the podcast, that would be fantastic. Something big just happened with DK Metcalf because I just went on Twitter and the top uh, four comments, CL, Seattle Seahawks, go DK, go DK, go. Uh, the next one says DK Metcalf, dynasty wide receiver. The next one says DK, too strong, too fast, LOL, great throw by Gino. The next one says DK, 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 DK. So either my Twitter just became Seahawks Twitter or something crazy happened. But anyways, the other way you support the podcast, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your grandma. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. 
All right, we are officially back, and it's time to dig into what PFF had to say. Very excited. Got some very awesome news to report. First of all, it's a short week, so I don't have a lot of time to make fun of the Bears, but I'm going to do it a little bit just because I cannot get enough. It was funny because JJ sent me a message on Twitter today saying something to the effect of, uh, now I know you were lying in the offseason when you said you don't care about the Bears. It was true when I said it, but then the Bears fans started opening their mouth, and they would not shut it, and they're still running their mouth. Fortunately, I think we've crossed that threshold. Um, I talked this past weekend about how I want the Bears to get to the point where their souls are just crushed, and they not only feel defeated this season, they recognize that moving into the future, they're doomed. They're now at that point. I have gotten my wish. But um, until they're fully, fully to the point of having a broken spirit, I think that's what I want. That's why I usually don't have a problem with Lions fans, because they usually have a broken spirit. Once your spirit is broken and you've submitted to the Green Bay Packers and recognize that although I hate them, they are superior and they are better, I'm fine with it. We have a fine and open relationship, and I respect the Bears. I had no issues with Trubisky. I respected Khalil. The whole team, I, I, I would talk glowingly about certain guys that I liked and didn't like and this and that, and everything was just fine because Bears fans knew their place. But then they started popping off all offseason, and the whole Justin Fields thing got out of control, and now we run the North, and everything runs through the North, and the game's too slow for them, and it kind of it kind of ticked me off a little bit, I'm not going to lie. And, and so, yeah, I suddenly really hated the Bears, and that kind of uh, woke up inside of me a little bit, something that's been dormant for quite a while. It's no different than anything else. You have a great relationship with your kid, and then, and then the kid decides he's going to pop off a little bit, and you got to kind of snap into, you better cool it, or we're going to have a problem mode. And then when they're like, all right, my bad, you're bigger than me. It's like, all right, let's uh, let's keep having fun. Stop talking about my big toe, or, or whatever the case may be. But anyways, because I, I feel like they're not fully broken, uh, many of them are. And, and I'm totally cool with the vast majority of Bears fans. Uh, some of them never really regained that they kind of were like well we'll see how it goes and now they're like yeah that's what I thought but there's a couple stragglers and for the most part they're basically just trolling and somebody messaged me on Twitter also talking about how this guy just will not stop about how he was sending him screenshots and videos of all the Packers bad calls against the Bears I mean just absolute you know of course it means nothing I mean look what just happened in Tampa what does any of those things change anything it changes nothing your team is trash Anyways, I just, I, I got to do it. Offensively, fourth highest graded player on the Bears offense had a 63 overall grade. Fourth highest graded player was barely average. They had three players that were 70 or higher. Jesse James, nobody cares, fluke. James Daniels, who sometimes he's good, their guard. And then Khalil Herbert, their running back. Two players, there was a whole lot of 50s and 60s. Two players were way below that. 52.4 was the third lowest grade. That's not that bad for a really low grade. Behind that, there was a 30 and a 20. 36.5, Justin Fields. Justin Fields is now the lowest graded quarterback in the entire NFL. You can blame Nagy. You can blame Laser. You can blame the offensive line. You can blame the running backs and the wide receivers and the, the wind conditions and the referees. You can blame anybody you want. A really good quarterback will never be dead last in the NFL. Tom Brady has played with some terrible wide receiver groups. Aaron Rodgers has struggled with no running game whatsoever for the vast majority of his career. Deshaun Watson played with no offensive line, no run game, 
no tight ends, one wide receiver, no defense, and he was one of the highest graded quarterbacks in all of football. Kyler Murray, clearly not the best team in the world. Derek Carr, Russell Wilson has played almost his entire career behind a horrific offensive line, is always considered a top five quarterback. Kirk Cousins is ranked fifth right now. He's, he's graded quite highly most years. Terrible, terrible uh, offensive line situation. But you just keep coming with the excuses because I love it. You know why I love it? Because as long as there's excuses, no changes get made. You can't grow, you can't improve if you don't acknowledge the problems. That's why Pace is still there. That's why Nagy's still there. Rather than recognizing we have a problem and changing it, we just keep making excuses. So, makes me happy. Furthermore, the Bears' defense had one player in the 70s, and it was my man, Mr. Tease Tabor, one of my favorite college prospects, basically, of all time. He's been terrible in the NFL. He's now moved to safety. He only played seven snaps, but still, he was the only guy in the 70s. They had no starters, or anybody else for that matter, that was in the 70s. Um, And they had, let's see... Well, 20 of their 21 players were average or worse, and then 9 of their 20, about half their team, was 50s or worse. This is their defense. Guys that graded out poorly included, as usual, Roquan Smith, Eddie Jackson, Khalil Mack, the savior Jalen Johnson, that second-year rookie that's really, really breaking out and having a great year, except it was really just two games that he did well, and it's been one, two, three, four, five games now in a row that he's played terribly. And he's on pace to be worse than he was last year. Man, you just hate to see it, don't you? (laughs) Can you tell I'm distressed? Anyways, I had a guy at work today say he wore a Bears jersey to work last Friday. And he's like, that was a bad idea. I've learned not to wear a Bears jersey around here. I said, I don't think it's a good idea to wear a Bears jersey in Chicago right now. But moving on to the Green Bay Packers, looking at the offense. A couple guys uh, to put on the old watch list that did not perform particularly well guys that were below the 50s, which 50s below average, at least that's my terminology. Anything below that is pretty much hot garbage. Josiah DeGuaro, once again, who has really just struggled to be anything other than subpar. Um, 50 pass grade, which is a receiving grade. 52 pass blocking grade, 52 run blocking grade. Nothing was way down in the 20s or 30s, but nothing was even average. So he needs to fully step that up. Royce Newman, Pretty much every week, I mean, he's got to be the worst offensive lineman in football right now. Um, he did have that 170, but it's been, let's see, 50, 50, 40, 40, 70, 40, 30. So um, absolutely brutal for Royce Newman. And I think as soon as the Packers get the opportunity, he will be off the field, and rightly so. And then A.J. Dillon, not super worried about A.J. Dillon, unlike Josiah and Royce. We know A.J. Dillon's a stud. He got very few opportunities uh, he ran the ball three times, and it was just the fact that he fumbled constantly that um, that really crushed him. So that's that's that situation. Guys that did well, we had five of them in the 70s or higher. Robert Tunyon with a 71. Elton Jenkins with a 75. Love having him back. 84.3 pass blocking grade. He was the only one in the 80s. Mercedes was the only other one that graded positively as a pass blocker. So this offensive line has been getting pretty brutalized. I mentioned before, they've been getting the job done, but they're grading pretty terribly. It's mostly been scheme that's keeping them alive. Um, They've been getting whooped on. I mean, these are unbelievable defensive lines we've been going up against, but still. um, But having a guy come in and just kind of actually win and manhandle the guy across from him, it feels good. Third was Devontae Adams, not super surprisingly. It was actually a down day for him. He was only the third highest graded with a 76.1 overall grade, but um, Devontae's a freak. 
Then we had our two big ones, uh, Mercedes Lewis, which we have to pause here for a minute because this is unbelievable. I don't know in his career if he's ever had three-game stretch quite like this. I'll have to go back and look, but I've, I've kept us up to date every single week. So he started the season with a 75, which is cool, but you figure it's kind of fluky. Sure enough, he follows it up with a 50, 51, 55. To be completely honest, that's more of what we're used to with Mercedes Lewis. Maybe a little bit worse, but that's generally what you get from him. Since then, 87, 89.5, and 85.8. He's been basically elite for three weeks in a row. If we go back to his best year ever in 2010, he did have a lot higher grades, but he never had three really elite games in a row. The closest... And you could probably say it averages out to being about the same, but um, weeks 8, 10, and 11, he had an 80 overall grade and followed it up with a 90.7 and a 90.2. There was also a couple weeks later a 92, a 95, and then an 80.9. So he's had some three-game stretches that are pretty good, but I don't think he's ever had three games this high this consistently. In other words, his lowest was like an 85. I don't know that that's ever happened. And you got to understand, starting in 2013, one really good game. 2014, one really good game. 2015, two really good games. 2016, uh, two, first week and the last week. 2017, two. 2018, one. 2019, two. 2020, he had one. So usually you get one or two of those in a season. He's had three in a row, and all three of them are higher than usually what you'll get even on his really high days um, on that given week. So I mean, it's just, and and the great thing about it is, again, it's his receiving grade that's so high. He has become a dominant receiving weapon, and it's not because we're using, see, that's the thing. I really do believe that this is just a perfect system for him, and they found a perfect niche for him, because they don't use him like they use him, like they use Robert Tunyon, where you shoot him down the seam. He's a guy that you slip out the side. He doesn't have to be super fast. You just get him a little bit of space, you throw him the ball, and you let him run through people. On top of that, it doesn't hurt that his pass blocking grades have been 75, 75, 73. Now, we know he's a good pass blocker, but he's been he's generally pretty inconsistent in his blocking. He started off 65, 57, 69. That's a little bit more of what you're used to. Not a consistently solid 75, 75, 72 on top of one of the best receiving... I got to look at the receiving um, tight ends. I don't think I've done that yet. Now, again, he started off really slow, but I want to see where he ranks among all receiving grades for tight ends. Uh, we'll sort this out a little bit. Where's Green Bay at? Is he not even on this list? He might not even be at. Where is he? He's got to be somewhere on here. So Tunyon is 34th. That doesn't make sense. Oh, I filtered out too many people. He doesn't have that many targets. That's fine. We'll leave it unfiltered. Um, he is ranked 7th, the 7th highest graded receiving grade, not 7th highest graded tight end. We're not talking overall tight end, including receiving, blocking, and everything else. Just his receiving ability. Number one is Mark Andrews. Number two is Rob Gronkowski, who's only played three games. Uh, Number three is Travis Kelsey, then Kyle Pitts, then uh, Michael Pruitt. I don't even know who that is, Tennessee Titans guy. By the way, everybody made fun of me for drafting Kyle Pitts in all my leagues. Stick it. Number six, Dalton Schultz from Dallas. Number seven, Mercedes Lewis. Just in order of best receivers at tight end this season. Now, that, again, that doesn't necessarily mean production. Um, he's only had 10 targets, 9 receptions, 108 yards, no touchdowns. A lot of these guys, I mean, Dalton Schultz, 36 targets, 31 receptions, uh, 360 yards, but still just incredible. And as far as overall grades, 10th, Mercedes Lewis, one spot ahead of George Kittle. 
But anyways, the uh, number one player on offense was Mr. Aaron Rodgers, 86.9. As usual, I forgot to send myself the information, so I think I'll just go through it live here because why not? Although it is almost bedtime, so I don't really have time to do this. But we're doing it anyways because I want to because it's fun. If we look at Aaron Rodgers' progression through the season and his overall uh, rank and grade based on PFF's grades by quarterback... Aaron Rodgers, after week one, was ranked 31st out of 32 quarterbacks with a 43.3 overall grade. That's where he started. Terrible performance from Aaron Rodgers and the team in general. In week two, Aaron Rodgers was ranked 30th out of 34. Slight bump up, right? He's slowly climbing the ranks. After week three, he was ranked 23rd out of 35. Again, good quarterbacks are going to climb out of the mud. They're not going to live there. That's where guys like Trubisky and Fields and those kinds of guys live. Guys like Aaron Rodgers don't live on the bottom. They'll claw their way out. Even having started off so low, you know, like when you get an F on your test and you're trying to get your GPA up, well, you got a lot of work to do to get it up, but you just keep on grinding. After week four, he was 25th out of 34. After week five, 22nd out of 35. After week six, 19th out of 36. And as of right now, he is 14th out of 33. Now, if I'd have just told you out of the blue, he's the 14th ranked quarterback, everybody would be rolling their eyes. Oh, no, I I get it. And it doesn't mean he's the 14th best quarterback in the NFL. You got to understand it's adding up everything over the course of the entire year. If I eliminate week one, it's going to change the landscape of things. Aaron Rodgers is ranked seventh overall. And if I just pull out all his bad games, he's going to rank really, really high. But again, this isn't about how good we think they're going to be going into the future or where we think they are right now. The point is he's climbing his way back and you can just see this slow, gradual ascension of Aaron Rodgers as he climbs and climbs and climbs. And you look at some of the guys in front of him, you know he's going to pass them like Mac Jones, who's doing a great job, but he'll pass Mac Jones. Um, Dak Prescott is, is doing a good job. He had a great week this week, but you know he's going to be a little bit more inconsistent. He's probably not going to be able to stay at the top as much as Aaron Rodgers can. Um, you look at a guy like maybe Matt Ryan, who, by the way, has caught fire the last three weeks, probably because he discovered he has a tight end on his team by the name of frickin' Kyle Pitts. But anyways, um, we'll see how that goes. But point is, it's cool to see him slowly reclaim his place where he belongs. Now, I mean, it's tough competition. Tom Brady's at the top. You got Russell Wilson. You got Ryan Tannehill, who's always at the top since he moved to Tennessee. You got Kirk Cousins, who's playing well. You got Derek Carr, who's always really high despite being hated. Uh, Justin Herbert's doing a great job. Kyler Murray's tearing it up. Joe Burrow's having a great season. Lamar Jackson, Matt Ryan, Josh Allen, Dak Prescott. You know, there's a lot of guys that are stiff competition, especially when you start off with a horrible week one and had a couple mediocre games in between. But anyways, the point is, when you look at Aaron Aaron Rodgers and the progression he's made this season, he's been slowly getting better. Um Started with that 43, went with a 70, had 180 mixed in, then back to a 60. But his last three weeks have been pretty solid and have gotten better every single week. So the last four, he went from 65 to 79 to 82 to 87. Uh, Digging a little bit on these offensive grades, looking at, uh, I guess we'll look at the grades first. The only positive run blocker was Randall Cobb, so that doesn't really mean anything. John Runyon, though, was pretty close with a 69.3. The really bad run blockers, Royce Newman, obviously at the bottom. Alan Lazard, surprisingly, had a really low grade. It happens from time to time with everybody, including Lazard. Lucas Patrick had a rough day at the office. Pass blocking, I mentioned Elton Jenkins, 84. After that was Mercedes Lewis with a 73. Um, 
guys that struggled, kind of a good amount of them, uh, 50s or worse. You had Billy Turner in the 50s, Lucas Patrick in the 50s, Josiah in the 50s, Runyon 44, Royce 40, and then Robert Tunyon at a 20.5. He's been real bad with the blocking stuff. I was just talking for like three minutes and didn't realize that I hit, uh, didn't really unpause it. Anyways, going back through these statistics again, uh, Billy Turner, who loves to be the top of this category, had the most pressures. He gave up a sack and two hurries. John Runyon gave up two pressures, both of which were sacks. After that, there were three guys with one, Lucas Patrick, Elton Jenkins, and Royce Newman. All three were just hurries. Anyways, I'm going to skip to the defensive side of things because we've been talking for quite a while. Plus, I mean, the stats we pretty much went over anyways. Uh, defense, starting off with the guys that really struggled. Um, there was a handful at the bottom. Jalen Smith, again, 48 overall. Again, I thought he did play a little bit better. Let me see how he compared to last week. Um, do, 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 do. Yeah, so last week was a 34, this week a 48. So technically, I'm correct. He did look a little bit better. Still not quite where we need him to be, but I mean, just look at the overall. I mean, his run defense went down, but his coverage went from a 29 to a 65. That's a massive jump. His tackling went from a 22 to a 76. So in those two categories, he made massive leaps. The run defense went back just slightly. Um, the pass rush basically stayed where it was. He's got one pressure in each of those games. And really, he had one attempt and one pressure. So the one time I did watch him, he did register a pressure. It seemed kind of close. I wasn't sure if they'd give him credit for that or not. But um, that's an area I thought he could kind of thrive, and, and he has been able to do that, which is cool. He's got the speed to do it. If he can just rush through the right lanes, he can get to the quarterback. So I'm actually kind of excited about Jalen. I mean, just and, and maybe this is where Dallas kind of got stuck on him, is you watch him run around and you can see the athleticism, and you're like, man, if this guy could figure it out, he's going to be so good, and he just doesn't. So maybe I'm kind of dreaming a little bit. But anyways, I'll, I'm holding out hope that something will come of that. Um, if not, we still have a fantastic linebacker. Uh, Shamar Jean Charles played 12 snaps. By the way, only one of these players that I'm listing that were bad is technically a starter. But Shamar Jean Charles with a 46, Tyler Lancaster 46, uh, TJ Slayton 45, Oren Burks was listed as a starter. Um, also listed as a left outside linebacker, which is kind of interesting. But um, he played nine snaps, three against the run, six of in coverage. So I don't know. But anyways, 38 overall grade. And then finally, Henry Black was graded as the lowest player, which could, shouldn't come as super surprise. I think most of us were pretty upset with his performance, although we didn't see him very much. Every time he was on camera, it's one of those things like, oh, come on, dude. Is that Black again? Get out of here. Anyways, on the positive side, I'm going to give a shout out to Isaac Yadam. He's technically not on this list. He's a 68, but I'm going to call it a 70 because um, I've kind of given him a hard time. And uh, didn't really notice he was out there all that much. But he played 14 snaps, had a 68 overall grade, and I'm happy about it because we need guys like Isaac Yadam to step up and fill those spots. The other really exciting thing, um, this is actually really incredible. Probably a big part of the reason why our defense played so well. So on this entire list, there's 21 players. Um, only eight of them performed in the 70s or higher. All eight were starters. Only three of the guys that didn't grade in the 70s were starters. So that is to say 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 of the non-really good players were non-starters. Only three were starters. So all the starters basically did really well. Eight out of 11. And only one of them, again, graded out really poorly, and that's Oren Burks. And again, we don't really consider him a starter, but I guess I guess he was. I don't know. I don't know how he got the starter badge. But he did. But uh, starting at the lowest and working our way up, Mr. Dean Lowry with a 72 overall grade. 
Chandon Sullivan, who has just been tearing it up the last several weeks with a 74 overall grade. The only reason he was as low as he was because he was uh, the second highest coverage grade, knocked it out of the park, but his run defense grade was at a 29. So that one kind of knocked him down a little bit. Kenny Clark, again, I want to look at him and see where he's been throughout the weeks here. Has he had a dip yet? Not really. It's been so he had two good weeks. Then he had weeks three and four. He kind of slept through. And then it's been three weeks in a row, not elite, but just solid all the way through. This is also the highest season grade so far since 2018. So um, he's not at that level where he was in the 90s, but it's clearly a better performance this season. After that, very, very excited to report Eric Stokes was the fifth highest graded player with a 76 overall grade, 67 run defense, 76 tackling, 75 coverage across the board. He did a great job. Get into the stats in a moment. Fourth highest graded was Adrian Amos with an 80.4. Again, just solid across the board. 70 run defense, 84 tackling. He's always a great tackler and 75 in coverage. Third highest was Mr. Rashawn Gary. I I did a whole thing on Twitter, and I think I'll I'll just read it all to you in a minute. But um, 82 overall grade. He's just absolutely killing it right now. Um, The run defense was actually quite bad. That is to say 47 run defense, 29 tackling, but a 90.1 pass rush grade. I want to tell you so badly the stats, but again, I'll just save it for when I read the tweet. But we're not, so that's an 82 overall. We still got two more guys. 88.1, Mr. Devondre Campbell. Get a load of this. I'll, I'll, I'll save the best for last. 66 coverage, which is fine. 57 pass rush, nobody cares. 82.8 tackling is dominant. 93.8 run defense. 93.8. This is a Green Bay Packers linebacker. I don't know if you knew that. I just want to read this. Here are his grades. I know I've done this before. I'm going to do it again. This this, this is his grades for his entire career going back to 2016. 55, 69, 56, 50, 49, 89.2. Run defense grades, 54, 63, 65, 62, 48, 91.4. What in the flip is happening right now? Anyways, I got to speed this up. Finally... Also very happy to report, Razul Douglas, number one in the uh, on the entire team, 88.3, 88.2 run defense, 84.9 coverage grade. This was his highest grade of his entire career. I went back through his entire career with the Eagles and, and the other team he was on, I think the Carolina Panthers, I don't remember. Don't want to look, got to hurry through this. Highest grade he's ever had. This, this, is, this is what I love about Joe Barry right now. Mike Pettin had a dominant team from top to bottom. Kenny Clark, Rashawn Gary, Zadarius Smith, Preston Smith. By all accounts, Blake was actually a pretty good linebacker. Maybe not quite this good, but good. Jair, Savage, Jameis. He had all the guys. It was just a matter of, can you get the best out of your guys? And he couldn't. Joe Barry is getting the best out of guys that have never had good careers in their entire lives. I don't know what the potential of this team is. I don't know why this is happening. Maybe it's some weird kind of a fluky thing. I don't know. But this is, this is remarkable what's happening. Anyways, let me rip through this tweet that I put. Now, the only reason I'm going through my tweets is because it's all the information is right here. But I did a thread on it because it was too much to just put into uh, you know, one tweet. First of all, it says, the guy had 10 pressures and two sacks against one of the top offensive lines in the NFL. That is absolutely true. They've allowed some of the least pressures and sacks of anyone. He got 10 pressures and two sacks. That is an unbelievably rare number to get. He registered a pressure on 31.2% of the snaps in this game. 31, So one-third of the time when he rushed the passer, he got to the quarterback. That's unbelievable. 
On the season so far, Rashawn Gary has 35 pressures on 200 pass rush attempts. That puts him at 17.5%. To put that into context, Zadarius Smith in 2019, who was the best pass rusher in the NFL that year, who had a career year, had a season pressure rate of 17.7. So basically, Rashawn Gary right now in terms of his pressures is playing on pace with Zadarius Smith in 2019. And Zadarius Smith in 2019 was playing on a pace that guys like Khalil Mack see once in their career. Rashawn Gary right now is fifth in pressures, third in win percentage, and is the 14th highest graded edge rusher in the NFL with the best two weeks being the last two weeks. In fact, Rashawn Gary, one of the problems with Rashawn Gary, if you look back at last year, for example, and this is kind of true of uh, Darnell Savage as well. And, and, you know, again, these guys are growing, they're learning, but the inconsistency was a problem. In fact, Rashawn Gary, like a lot of guys, Amos Savage, Kenny, whatever, didn't really get started until the second half of the season. His first good game was in week 10. He'd have two good games and then he fell off 45, 58, 57, 49. That's terrible. Then he had three great games, 90, 90, 81. And then finally against Tampa, 53. Just inconsistency. It would kind of come in bunches and disappear for most of the season. These are Rashawn Gary's grades for this season. First of all, his worst game this entire season was a 62.3 was his grade. That's his lowest. That's pretty remarkable. But his grades for the entire season, 71, 62, 65, 78, 71, 87, 82. He has had five good games out of seven so far this year. The last two games have been in the 80s. Not to mention, if you just look at his pass rush, because there are other times when he would do well, but it was mostly just his run defense. There'd be one game where his pass rush was good, the next day it was his run defense, whatever. So far this year, these are his pass rush grades. 76, 76, 68, 73, 55, 72, and 90.1. Again, if we go back, just to put it into context, these are his grades last year. 61, 65, 49, 57, 59, 52, 61, 75, 65, 53, 64, 56, 57, 82, 56, 85, 56. The vast majority were 50s. 50s and 60s comprised almost all of them. In fact, three games were not in the 50. Well, technically, there was, uh, we'll call the 49.2 a 50. Only three games were not 50s and 60s, 75, 82, 85. So far this year, he has surpassed the amount of good games as a pass rusher, as he did the entire year last year. He's blossoming in a major way. The, the statistics were always kind of there, but the grades were never that good. In other words, I think he was very inconsistent on a snap-to-snap basis. Because remember, if you get five pressures, that's a great game. But you might rush 50 times. And that, that puts you at 10%. Or even if you, if you rush 40 times and get five pressures, that's a great number. But it also means you might have just flat out failed 35 times. I mean, the, the quality of those 35 rushes in which you didn't get a pressure can still either be good or bad. And that's where the grades come into play outside of the stats. And again, Rashawn has always been good with stats, despite the fact that most people think that that's his problem is he doesn't get the stats. It's not true. He's a stats guy, not a sacks guy, but a stats guy. The inconsistency has come with his, his uh, ability to produce in between the statistics, and he's done that. Even run defense, his last four weeks, this last week again was not good. The three prior, 78, 79, 83. So he's been doing well. In the last four weeks, he's had three really good run defense days, three really good tackling days, and three really good pass rush days. They they alternate when each was, but on average, he's doing great across the board. Um, So I don't think we are really understanding how much Rashawn Gary is blossoming right now. I don't think we're truly appreciating the meteoric rise of Rashawn Gary that's happening right before our eyes. It's truly incredible. 
Anyways, kind of zooming in a little bit, uh, run defense grades, only three guys graded out real well. Adrian Amos in the 70s, Razul Douglas, 88, Devondre Campbell, 93, as I said. Pass rush grades, only three. Dean Lowry with a 71.7. We'll get into the stats in a minute. Pretty incredible, to be honest. Kenny Clark, 77. Again, Rashawn Gary with a 90. And then coverage, we had quite a few that were quite high. Adrian Amos, 75. Eric Stokes, 75. Jonathan Garvin, 77. Shannon Sullivan, 83. Razul Douglas, 85. I want to highlight one more thing. Um, Eric Stokes, I mentioned what a great job he did. Um, Again, he's kind of getting targeted quite a bit, but he he still hangs in there. He does a good job. This was a tough assignment. In fact, if we look at this, it's kind of interesting too, because this this was maybe arguably his best game. I mean, you can argue about, you know, well, yeah, the one pick in the one game and all that stuff. And he gave up a touchdown. How could this be? Here's the thing though. His other good games came weeks one and two. He had a 79 overall and a 72 overall in week two, but he didn't take over as a true number one until uh, week three. His grades in those games were 51, 44, 58, 56. This week though, he was, the, he was the main number one cornerback. He got a 76 overall grade, and he was matched up largely, mostly, against Terry McLaurin, who is a premier wide receiver in this league. He really is. He's a top 15 wide receiver. He's very good. And for the most part, he locked him down all day. He only allowed two receptions. Again, one of them was a touchdown. That's unfortunate. But five targets, two receptions, 46 yards, and a pass breakup. I mean, he, he like a lot of these other guys, mostly just locked it down. I'm just, I'm so happy with what we're seeing so far. Anyways, pressures on the day, 29 pressures. I want to go back in time here. I don't know if they've had that many this entire season. 29. Last week was 23. Week five was 18. Week four was seven. Week three was 23. Week two was 20. Week one, I doubt was very good. It was only 10. This was, again, and I had somebody message me that the, the pressure wasn't good enough. Um, Dude, we uh, we dominated in this game. And I, it, again, it probably didn't show up as much. Well, I mean, it kind of showed up more toward the end. A bunch of sacks and pressure started to arise. But either way, and again, this is a dominant, dominant offensive line. And, and look who woke up. You got Rashawn Gary playing some of his best. But Rashawn Gary overshadowed another guy. Rashawn Gary, 10 pressures. We only get 19 if Rashawn doesn't play. But think about the fact that we don't have Zadarius right now. This is crazy. I'm freaking out. I just, I just want to know. Like, if, if, can you imagine? I understand it's Washington. They don't have a very good offense, but still, what would have happened if we had Jair and Zadarius in this game? Can you even imagine? It's unbelievable. Kenny Clark had seven pressures in this game. That is an unbelievable number. It gets overshadowed because of Rashawn's ten. We'll use the flashlight thing again. Um, but seven pressures on 41 attempts is incredible. That's right at the 17 mark. Kenny Clark continues to just dominate. He has 29 pressures on the season and two sacks. After that, you got Whitney Merciless. Um, he's coming right out. I mean, th- this is this is really incredible. Whitney Merciless had four pressures. He didn't have any sacks or even any hits. He had four pressures. He only had 23 attempts, though. He was at 17.4%. Again, I'm, I'm dead serious. And you, and you can say, well, they had replacements in. The replacements are doing as good, if not better, than the guys that were in there before. They're grading out remarkably well. And it was just on one side of the field. It was the right side of the field. Whitney Merciless was on the other side, taking on the guys that have been there the whole time. Kenny Clark is on the interior. He's, he's going against the center and maybe a little bit against one of the guards, but not much, mostly the center, who's been there the whole time. 
So Rashawn Gary was at 31% of his snaps. Kenny Clark at 17%. Whitney Merciless, 17% of the time, registered a pressure. Dean Lowry had three pressures in a sack on 22 attempts. That's 13.6%. That's an incredible day. Jonathan Garvin had two pressures on 23 attempts, slightly below 10%. I'll take that. Um, and then Kingsley Kiki had two pressures and two sacks on 31 uh, attempts. So not a very good overall effort. But um, if you're only going to get two pressures on 31 attempts and they're both sacks, I'll 100% take that. Finally, Jalen Smith also with that one pressure on the one attempt. We're talking 100% solid. Uh, Missed tackles weren't bad. I mean, again, we are the number one team in tackling right now. This was a rough game, so I don't know if if, uh, that stat still holds, but they've done a great job. The only guy that missed more than one tackle was Rashawn Gary. Um, He had... That says he only had two tackles, one assist, and two misses. That's a pretty high um, amount. But anyways, Henry Black, Razul Douglas, Kingsley Kiki, and Darnell Savage each missed one tackle. Otherwise, nada. Stops, which are basically meaningful tackles. Devondre Campbell had four of them. Kingsley Kiki, three. Rashawn Gary, two. Razul Douglas, two. Dean Lowry, two. And then one apiece for Garvin, Burks, Sullivan, Lancaster, Savage, and Amos. So fantastic. Force fumbles. Two for Devondre Campbell, which is ridiculous. One for Rashawn Gary, one for Razul Douglas. Just absurd. And then uh, coverage. Chandon Sullivan, six targets, four receptions, 23 yards and a pick. I mean, does it get any more than that? I mean, again, you, you look at six targets, four receptions, and it's like, ah, man, it's, I mean, it could be a little better, I guess. 23 yards and a pick is all the guy gave up. I mean, again, there's there's just no way to get mad at any of these guys. Nobody's really given up a ton. I mean, you do have Henry Black, um, who only played 17 snaps, somehow managed to give up uh, five targets on six, six receptions for 62 yards. He gave up more yards than anybody else on this defense, despite playing like one-fifth of the amount of snaps. It's really incredible. Eric Stokes playing 72 snaps, five targets, two receptions, 46 yards, one touchdown, one pass breakup. I already said that, but still... Darnell Savage, five targets, three receptions, 57 yards. A little bit high on the 57, but it's it's not going to kill you. And he did have one pass breakup in there. Devondre Campbell, three targets, three receptions, only 20 yards. Uh, Adrian Amos, three targets, two receptions, only 15 yards in a pass breakup. That's unbelievable. Shamar Jean Charles, two targets, two receptions, 27 yards. That's very fine. Uh, Razul Douglas, um, he had two targets, one reception, four yards, and a pass breakup, which is just stupid. Jonathan Garvin, one target, one reception, five yards. Oren Burks, one target, one reception, nine yards. Jalen Smith, one target, one reception, zero yards. Um, I mean, again, outside of Henry Black, is there anybody here that you look at and go, dude, you just got killed? No. I mean, Savage is the closest one to it, um, but that's it. It was, you know, a 28-yarder. The other one must have been pretty close to it, but uh, that was about it. None of that makes me mad. So anyways, I mean, it's it's a really incredible effort. And, um, you know, I understand this Thursday is going to be tough, and we'll start to look into that a little bit more. Um, but anyways, I'm going to cut it there. Hopefully this whole thing gets uploaded. Somebody mentioned that uh, it got cut off yesterday. Hopefully that wasn't true for all of you. But um, we're going to leave it at that. You folks have yourselves a fantastic day. We're going to have to start talking about the Cardinals tomorrow, so hopefully no big major news. But uh, there is quite a bit to talk about there. Have a great day. Talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one. Bye-bye.